Hello and welcome. This is the Leap of Faith on a day that saw Pope Francis arrive in Iraq, fulfilling a wish first expressed by both Popes John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI, cancelled due to the war and civil unrest there. It's an immensely symbolic trip, coming under a global media spotlight. Pope Francis has just landed in Iraq, where he's going to fulfill a long-standing promise to become the first pontiff to visit the country. The three-day visit is his first trip outside Italy since the pandemic began. He's going to be welcomed by the Prime Minister in Baghdad before meeting President Baram Salah at the Presidential Palace. The head of the Roman Catholic Church says he's going as a pilgrim of peace. We're Pope Francis was welcomed by several choirs lining the route from his aircraft to a large reception hall at the airport. COVID and security fears have made this his riskiest visit yet, but the 84-year-old has insisted that he was duty-bound. Pope Francis has said he was very pleased to come to Iraq, which he described as the cradle of civilization. He's called for an end to violence and extremism, criticising fractional and foreign interests that have destabilised the country and wider region and hit ordinary people the hardest. Christian leaders estimate that fewer than a quarter of a million Christians now remain in Iraq, with the largest population, at least 200,000, living in the north of the country. Tomorrow, Saturday, the Pope will fly south to the Shia holy city of Najaf, where he will visit Grand Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani. Siraj Zaidi is a spokesperson for the National Shia Islamic Centre in Milltown in Dublin, and he joins me now from his home. Siraj, can I ask you from your perspective as a, as a Shia Muslim, the, the relevance and importance of this visit today? I suppose it's enormous. The relevance is really is enormous because uh, it's overdue for centuries. It's the first ever historical visit of Pope Francis to Iraq and to meet personally Ayatollah Sistani, which is the counterpart, you could say that, in the world, Shia world and a Muslim world. So it is significantly important, I would say, for the world to get a very good gesture and a message that, uh, hey, I mean, we are all humans, we are all coming from Abrahamic faith, and we are brothers, and therefore it's important to extend uh, the uh, brotherly gesture and help in the post-war Iraq. Uh, I believe you've been to the country, what, at least twice, so you have an, an additional insight that you can share with us. And people mightn't appreciate the extent to which all three faiths at different times have actually managed to to coexist quite happily. Absolutely, and Iraq is a perfect example of that, which um, originates the most of the birthplace of many Abrahamic prophets is Iraq itself. So um, the pilgrims who go there, it's a holy land. The reason I've been there twice, in fact, the first year uh, I went there in 2019, 18 at the uh, Christmas day, I was there. And then the New Year's Eve, I was there in Najaf in Iraq, I took my wife, who was suffering for the cancer at the time, and uh, she had a wish to <coughs> visit the Holy Land, um, you know, and it was a very personal kind of decision to take her there. But while I was there, I ended up meeting some professors, and they subsequently invited me, you know, after a few months, in fact, <clears throat> in April, March, again, at the University of Kufa to have a paper on the conference on uh, Imam Ali, which is the holy shrine of uh, Imam Ali is in Najaf. And Kufa was his uh, hometown. 
So lo and behold, twice, yeah, in, uh, in, <laughs> in 2019, I end up going there. He's visiting Ork. Would you tell us the significance of that? Yeah, I mean, as I said, Iraq has got a huge history when it comes to a shared civilization. And that is the place of Abrahamic birth. And a lot of, of, you know, the prophets were born there. A lot of prophets have got a history. Uh, and if you take the pilgrimage trip, the strategic cities are, um, you know, Najaf, Karbala, uh, Kazmain, Samara, and this place that you just mentioned, Ur, Urj. Uh, and, and so therefore, there are, they have a history there for, for, for all the, um, you know, strategic uh, prophets arriving there and jostling together in sort of like a multi-faith. So the people were sort of living together in their own um, faith, but at the same time, comfort with the other faith as well. And this is the purpose of multi-faith scenario of the Abrahamic faith uh, that, 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 uh, that is so important in the world of today's world, I would say. Suraj Zahidi, thank you for joining us tonight. You're very welcome, Michael. Thank you for having me. Staying with the visit to Iraq by Pope Francis, another person with a well-informed perspective on this event is a member of the UK House of Lords. Baroness Emma Nicholson of Winterbourne. She's the executive chairman of the Amar Foundation, which works to rebuild and improve disadvantaged communities living in war-torn areas, including Iraq. Baroness Nicholson named the charity after a young Iraqi boy she fostered with her husband 30 years ago. Amar had been left covered in agonising burns when the Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein bombed Shia Muslim communities in southern Iraq on the 1st of March 1991, the first day of an official ceasefire. Baroness Nicholson joins me now from London. Welcome to The Leap of Faith. We'll talk about your work in Iraq in a moment, but can I begin by asking you about the significance of this visit at this time? I cannot say more than extraordinary gratitude to Pope Francis and to all of those who've organised his visit. It's one of the most momentous visits for many, many, many moons. This is absolutely wonderful news. I started to try to support the Iraqi people in their difficulties under Saddam Hussein uh, in 19, oh, a long time ago, when there was the appalling chemical weapons attack on the Kurds. And I've never stopped and have been very practical about it. What I've been doing is giving aid in terms of proper medical care. At some point, it was supported by Dublin, which was absolutely magnificent. And proper medical care, because people who are being tortured and beaten up and forcibly displaced, loss of everything, the one thing they need more than anything else is public health. And so the Dublin um, uh, aid side was just magnificent, the government, for a while. If I could have them back, I'd be thrilled to bits. But apart from that, lots of good donors, kind, small donations, you know, and uh, it's made a lot of difference this year, even on very, very little money at all. We've managed to save uh, the lives and futures of 150,000 widows, orphans, victims of torture, of slavery, you name it, the imagination boggles and the, the, the horrors fall in on you when you realise what's been happening. So the compassion that Pope Francis will bring, his embodiment of the first two great commandments, that will be absolutely 
you know, striding like a colossus. Absolutely wonderful. I'm so excited that he's coming. I'm an Anglican and I thank him profoundly. I was going to ask about your own faith and, and how that supports you through the process. But let's let's set the context for people who might know, because if we think of a country like Iraq, the idea that there's a Christian heritage to it might come as a surprise to some people. But it goes a long way back. Iraq is very, very unusual. And what she's struggling to do is to retain her uniqueness. And this is very difficult because Iraq has had a mass of small faiths of different kinds. And uh, the problem with the modern world is it wipes those out, sometimes very deliberately. Uh, I've been working for the last, since 2014, when they were attacked with the Yazidis, for example, a faith that very, very few people knew about before and even now don't properly understand. It's a one-God faith, but it wasn't recognised by the Ottoman Empire, and so it's beyond the pale. It's it's there to be wiped out. And many other faiths which have been hugely exciting to discover, and the Mandeans, for example, these are the followers of St. John the Baptist. I haven't quite dared ask them. I thought St. John the Baptist was seeking followers for Christ. I haven't quite dared ask them why he wanted his own followers. But the Mandeans have now gone right down to only, I think it's 10,000. That these, these tiny pockets of true believers, wonderful faith people, good, honest, really upright citizens of Iraq, they're the ones who are being rolled over by the absolute nasties. And this is the faith that has to be fought for and kept going. The Christianity, of course, goes right the way back to the very beginning of Christianity. And losing Christianity in Iraq is a devastating blow. Hundreds of thousands of Christians have been wiped out, killed, tortured, or have just managed to run away. And uh, so Christianity herself is very, very, very weak at the moment. That's why, again, why the visit of the Holy Father will make a massive difference. There's also a belief that his visit will not only support the Christians in the country, but also the the other faiths that are present. In other words, he's welcomed by all sides for this visit. Yes, I think this is true. You see, sadly, um, after all, we're Judeo-Christian, aren't we, you and I, uh, and certainly the Pope and the Archbishop of Canterbury and so on, we're Judeo-Christians. But Iraq has not only wiped out the Jews, it is illegal to be a Jew in Iraq now. So you can tell when mankind takes against a faith, they will do anything possible as if it was poison to eliminate it. But in fact, uh, the goodness and beauty which that faith has exhibited, probably over couple of millennia now is is something that Iraq will miss dreadfully. So we all have to help in every possible way. Can we explore for a moment uh, the practical approach that you have taken to the assistance in Iraq? And I also want to bring up Amar in the conversation, if I can, because it has two meanings. It is a person, but it is also a charity. Uh, The Amar Foundation, which I started in 1991, um, has flourished this year with a tiny 
tiny staff of two and a half people in London and a wonderful board of volunteers, uh, we've given proper public health and mental health and some education to 150,000 Iraqis. And these are the ones at the very margins, beyond the margins of society. They wouldn't get a grain of an aspirin if we hadn't done it, and they wouldn't have had a fraction of education. Some of them are orphans. We're focusing a lot on orphans, in the South particularly. Iraq now has uh, five million orphans, five million children without parents on the streets, on the rubbish dumps, and that's out of a population of about 32 million people. And then there's at least a million widows and probably many more. And when you're a widow in a society like that, uh, what can you do except sell your body to feed your child? There is no other future. You're not literate, you're not numerate, you haven't learned. So some of the things we do is um, reading and writing, and adding up and subtracting for older ladies and for older gentlemen. This makes a huge difference to their lives. Suddenly, they understand the world. Then for the youngsters, we've done a vast amount of IT to get them right into the proper world. And this is very exciting. Children of 11, 12, 13, 14, girls and boys teaching them the computer. Of course, that's the real world again. Iraqis are very intelligent people. They used to have the best education in the region. They used to have the best health in the region. And it's awful to think what uh, the discovery of oil did to them. Uh, they plug out, they got to the top and grabbed everything. It's terrible. They just haven't been able to cope. Whereas a very stable society such as Oman has just steadily got bit by bit the whole population richer. I suppose they were stable before. They've been a, Oman's been a, a unique country uh, for a very long time indeed. But nonetheless, uh, many of the Middle East countries haven't managed it. And Iraq is one of those, sadly. What was the impact of you finding yourself bringing a young man into your home as a foster parent? Well, Amar, the man, he's now over 40. And he's put up with this devastation of his body and face uh, very, very bravely. He'd had 26 major operations. He must have suffered more pain than one can imagine. And uh, he loved the hospitals. I mean, they were wonderful to him. But his pain burden was tremendous. He was at Guy's Hospital. And they were just amazing. 26 operations, steadily, steadily giving him an achievable face, a livable face and a livable body. He had 46% third degree burns all over his front. So um, he's, he's, uh, he's a triumph, really. Before we finish, Baroness, can I bring you back to Iraq for just a moment? And given your knowledge and insight, how safe is the Pope on this particular trip? I think that the Pope is completely safe because I really don't think anybody would dare to lay a hand on him in any shape or form. It's not a safe country for its own citizens. Um, but they will be so excited and so happy that I think that will envelop the Pope in terms of safety, rather like a protective seal. So I think it's a magnificent visit, and I really applaud. Baroness Nicholson of Winterbourne, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith tonight. Thank you. 
From London, let's come back home to Waterford, to Christchurch Cathedral in the city. On March 10th last year, the doors were closed on the cathedral and five days later they broadcast their first Sunday service online. Well, joining me now from her home is Dean of Waterford, the very Reverend Maria Janssen. Dean, welcome. Tell us about the time since. On the 10th of March, which was a Tuesday, I can remember it, Trevor Sargent was my curate. He's now the rector in Bunclody. And Trevor and I decided that we would really close shop for safety's sake. That was it. And the following Sunday, I took my computer and I planked it up on a table in front of the altar. And Trevor and I did communion that Sunday from the cathedral. We recorded it. We sent it out on YouTube. And that has been the way of life since. Even when there was an opening of the cathedral for those few weeks during the summer, we kept the online stuff because I actively told the compromised, stay at home. Don't want to see you. Love you to bits. Don't want you in. Don't risk it. God is God. You can meet God anywhere. You don't need the four walls of a church to pray. So we had our death rate in the community went up 75% in the last year. And hugely important members of our community, older people who were adored, legendary died just legendary characters like people we i won't name name but people that would have filled the cathedral 10 times over with those whose lives they touched and there was a hundred at that funeral we had double deaths within 12 hours somebody would die on a friday night another would die on a saturday morning and the death rate was humongous and i think i did 14 funerals which would be very unusual for us within a very short period of time. And one was a young mother with four children and there was 10 at her funeral. So it was traumatic for the families, traumatic for the community that wanted to reach out and love to them. And I just said, you can't, you can't. It's, you know, you just can't. Desperately sad funerals, a couple of weddings, and one very tragic wedding in a hospital with three weddings, cancelled confirmation, which wasn't popular. I just, in fairness, people are very smart when you say, I don't want to see you, they get it, why? And I didn't care if religion ended as long as they were alive and this thing was over, didn't care. Well, let's explore that a little bit further, because if if people's religion was being challenged by the process of not being able to be in the building, What has happened to people's faith, that your observation of it? What's come through? The, the What's come through has been fabulous, Michael. Has been fabulous. Um, Church of Ireland people are very reserved, right? North of the border, there's a different religious culture. It's evangelical and it's more, much more based on revivalism and a very public and vocal display of faith. That is not the way the middle of the road, 5-8 does it in the Republic. It's sort of less is more. Don't talk about it. Do it. But you'll find out maybe when the person has died that they've read the Bible every night beside their bed or that a wife would say so-and-so kneels beside the bed every night before he gets into bed and has done so for the last 40 years. The knees aren't good now. And you, you so what actually happened in the last year I think people went into their own inner temple. 
to where they found strength with God throughout their lives. And we started a morning prayer, five, eight minutes online on the 22nd of uh, the beginning of the hard lockdown, 22nd of October. You know, it's been rotten since really. And last Monday was the hundredth morning prayer. Now morning prayer, it's just called prayer at breakfast, make a mug of coffee, in, you're in your nightie or whatever, your pajamas. Couples sign into it and one farmer said to me, Maria, you know, when you're doing morning prayer, you're looking into my porridge. <laughs> and somebody else would say, I really, I love your morning prayer because I listen to it at night when I can't sleep and you nod me off. I listen to it on the way to work. Me and my wife listen to it, which was the kids. And they come back to me and they say, would you pray about this or this is happening? And it can be you know, anything. And so you make it very general, but the family know you're praying for them. There was a miscarriage or somebody is, there's a mental health issue or there's a kid going off the wall or there's a marriage in really in, in a bad space. So the prayers wove into this, very simple morning prayer and they're feeding back to me and what i think has happened is we've become a more spirit not a more spiritual community that's the wrong word but the spirituality and the faith and the relationship with god that the people had about which they did not speak and expressed in communal worship has now become more visible ironically mm. when we're not in church You've said before that, you know, if you had been doing morning prayer in the cathedral, there might have been a handful of people there. You're seeing I was a lucky. lot more. You're seeing an awful lot more now. Oh, yeah, because they don't have to get up or get dressed. It's, it's the way I do morning prayer anyway. To be honest with you, my morning prayer for the last 45 years is get up, make a pot of coffee, pour a large mug, go into the sitting room, plant the dog on my left lap, do my morning prayer, do my prayers. That's how I do it. Dog, coffee, pajamas. I don't dress up or get holy to pray, but it keeps me between the ditches early in the morning and sharing that as shorter version of it with people has connected us very deeply. You were writing in the Irish Times recently about the uh, the importance of the changes and that the fact that there will be, you believe, something good that will come mm. out of this. Mm. Go on, be that optimist for me. What, what what good is coming out of this for people? I think we've shed an awful lot of the rubbish. I really do. Um, we've shed ideas that to have stuff is very important. And we've recovered ideas that, or we've recovered values that, do you know, if at the end of this, my loved ones are well and safe, I can hack anything. I think that people have turned to God, either to shout to heaven and throw bricks to heaven, or to find in, in Christ some strength. And I think that we will all have been changed having come through it to know that we have reserves that we never thought we had. 
Has the I'm thinking back to you and indeed some of your colleagues who would have been, you know, the front runners of of women in clergy in in, in the Church of Ireland. Um, do you feel any happier now that when you if you look over your shoulder where you've come from and where you're going and where your colleagues are going uh, about the role of women in the Church of Ireland? No, I think the role of women in the Church of Ireland has stalled. I think it's stalled. I think we are tokens. I know I'll be shot. A friend of mine said the other day as a result of the article, duck. I probably will have to duck more now with this. I think uh, smart, young, entrepreneurial, gutsy women um, with ideas, with gumption, would look at the system and say, nah, I'll do an NGO. I'll do advocacy. I'll do human rights. I'll do medicine. I'll do law. It isn't appealing to young, smart women. It's very much a maintenance thing. Uh, There are token women. There's a a woman bishop. There are two deans and there's one archdeacon. That's after 30 years. Come on, guys, wake up and smell the coffee like that's just rubbish. Um, You know, I, I really think we have to have serious conversations. Is this attractive to a young woman who wants to have a family in her 20s and 30s? Is this a lifestyle that's good for marriage? That's a big question that has to be looked at because there are huge assumptions on the partner. I think the collegial manner in which women, when they lead, and women who lead as women are non-hierarchical. And that's a singular uh, conflict, a subversive aspect of women's ministry in the church because the truer we are to the way that we lead, the less hierarchical we are. And that really is not the way the system works. The system is that there is a food chain and the archbishops are at the top of it. God is an inch above the archbishops and at the lower end, you know, you have children, maybe a Jack Russell underneath that. But it's a very, very weird anthropology of hierarchy. So when, say, you have a young woman who's who's a natural leader, coming in, well, she'll have to keep her mouth shut for her curacies and for quite a while until she gets her legs under the table to exercise her type of leadership. And women are not in leadership in central committees. There are some fabulous women in the church, really fabulous women who've been ordained for decades and who are doing amazing work and have done amazing work. But it's not conducive to smart young women coming in. Where's your optimism now? What are, you, what are you hoping for? What are you praying for, actually? I daily pray for God's encouragement of the people. That they, on Monday morning, I got up at half five to glimpse the beautiful sunrise through very dark trees. And, to, you know, you, it wasn't a glorious sunrise. It was one of those lovely hinted sunrises and the light was on the horizon. And I suppose my job is to help people to keep their eyes on the light on the horizon and to prevail and to keep steady and to take heart and to mind each other, and mind each other, reach out to each other, and more importantly, reach out when they feel themselves sinking. Dean Marie Janssen, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you, Michael. And that's our Leap of Faith for this week. Our producer is Sheila O'Callaghan. Our broadcast coordinator is Jonathan Holland. From them and me, Michael Cummins. Good night.